Well, Happy New Year to you all. It's nice to see you all. Okay, so today, uh, as you know, I did a, a series last year um, on the blueprint for the end time church. Uh, well, I'm going to carry on that um, um, series, so to speak, because there's quite a lot of it. And, uh, and today I'm going to talk about, or over the next several weeks, I'm going to talk about the joy of Sabbath. Not something you probably hear mentioned in church much these days, um, but I think it's important. Um, now, as you know, with that Blueprint series, I've covered various things. So we looked at the priesthood of believers. We looked at the importance of liturgy, the restoration of the tabernacle of David. But that's all very well and good in theory. But how does that actually apply into our everyday lives? And how do we apply that to our lives as well and, and live that through? And so this sort of set of series is going to look at uh, a whole series of things that we can take from the scriptures and learn to apply it into our life as a rule of life. Now, as you know, uh, we have plans put in to build a monastery, which sounds a really strange thing to say, but that's what we're going to be building. And, but obviously every monastery has a rule. Now, so for example, for those that know anything about monasteries, you'll know there's different types of rules. There's the Augustinian rule, there's the Benedictine rule, etc. And so these are rules of life which the monastery operates by to help them to live in community with one another and to grow in their fellowship with God as well. So it's all quite important stuff. And um, I believe uh, quite strongly that God has been saying, saying to me personally that for a long time that he wants to bring back those ancient paths of Britain. Now, what I'm going to say today, although in one sense it's prophetic, is actually 100% biblical and it's also 100% historical as well. So it doesn't matter what my take is on it. It is a historical and biblical fact, what I'm going to be talking about today as well. But I do believe that God wants to bring things back to modern Christendom that we have allowed to fall by the wayside in the past. Stuff that was good, stuff that was necessary, stuff that was, uh, was good for the church. The problem is without, throughout church history... As a move of one thing comes, the general reaction is let's do a knee-jerk reaction and kick off everything that went off before. And so, you know, I've said all this a thousand times before, but you have, for example, in, in AD 1000s, you had the separation of the Catholics and the Orthodox. 500 years later, you had the separation of the Protestants from the Catholics. And since that time, when anything's come along, like a move of the Spirit or something, we've jettisoned off everything to do with everything previously until all we've got today that's left is this really thin veneer, which we call Christianity, that doesn't take into consideration the depth and the breadth of what we've left behind in history. Because there's lots of things that we've left behind in history that I believe God wants to bring back. And history bears this out as well. So I'm gonna talk about certain things, but I'm gonna start now with a group of Christians known as the Celtic Christians, okay? Might not have ever met one, hopefully, because uh, they died out a long time ago. But in early Christianity in this nation, so they reckon Christianity came to the British Isles in about 100 AD. In its, really, in its early days. But by the, by, by the time of 350 through to 750, AD 750, we had a group of Christians known as Celtic Christians, that basically that was the form of Christianity across this nation. And then eventually they finally died out in 1100 AD, and there was a council of Whitby that told the Celtic Christians they have to kind of get in line with all the other Christians, and I'll explain some of that as well. And so that's when a lot of the things that the early Christians did in this land of Great Britain kind of fell by the wayside and one of those things that the Celtic Christians did was Sabbath now 
one of the things that you might not know, which is really interesting, is there were two groups of Christians. You had the Eastern block of Christianity and the Western block of Christianity. So obviously, you know, Christianity started in Jerusalem and spread out throughout all the Middle East and went out to Africa and parts of Europe, etc. Well, Christendom was kind of not split as such, but it almost had two different camps. So you had the Eastern block of Christianity versus the Western block. Now, in the Eastern block, they, they, it was, it, some scholars say that they followed in the footsteps of the Apostle John, whereas in the Western block, they followed in the steps of the Apostle Peter. So there were slight differences between the two. And one of them is about the practice of Sabbath. So in the, in the early Celtic Christianity, many Celts observed both the Sabbath and the Lord's Day as two separate days. Not all of them. It depends where you went. So in Scotland, they had some kind of practice. In England, they had another. And in Ireland and Wales, they had slightly other. But basically, some Celts observed Sabbath and the Lord's Day. Some observed just the Lord's Day. Some observed just Sabbath. So there is, there is like a variation there of what that went out that was going on about that time. Now, I'm going to quote some stuff to you now about the practice of Sabbath in the early church from historical sources and from books that quote these historical sources. So just bear with me. So it said, It is certain that the ancient Sabbath did remain and was observed together with the celebration of the Lord's Day by the Christians of the Eastern Church 300 years after the Saviour's death. That's from a learned treatise of the Sabbath. Um, as early as AD 225, there existed large uh, conferences of the church in the East that were Sabbath keeping, stretching from Palestine to India, um, Mingana. And that's from the early spread of Christianity, volume 10. Um, Thou shalt observe the Sabbath on account of him who ceased from his work of creation, um, but ceased not from his work of providence. It is a rest for meditation on the law, not for idleness of hands. And that's from the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Uh, that's from uh, volume number seven. And that's, yeah, I'll talk, talk more about, about that in a minute. Uh, the ancient Sabbath did remain and was observed by the Christians of the Eastern Church above 300 years after our Saviour's death from the treaties of the Sabbath. Um, another one. But assemble yourselves together every day, morning and evening, singing psalms and praying in the Lord's house. In the morning, saying the 62nd Psalm and in the evening, the 100th and 40th Psalm. But principally on the Sabbath day, and on the day of our Lord's resurrection, which is the Lord's day, meet more diligently, sending praise to God that made the universe by Jesus and sent him to us and condescended to let him suffer and be raised from the dead. Uh, and that's taken from the Constitutions of the Apostles, which was written in around about AD 250 to 300. Um, it was the practice generally of the Eastern churches and some chur churches of the West, for, in for instance, the Church of Milan. It seems that Saturday was held in fair esteem, not that the Eastern churches or any of the rest which observed the day were inclined to Judaism, but that they came together on the Sabbath day to worship Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. And that's a book from the history of the Sabbath. Um, because on the day the Lord suffered the death of the cross under Pontius Pilate, but keep the Sabbath and the Lord's Day, which is a Sunday festival, because the former is the memorial of the creation and the latter of the resurrection, which is also from the Constitutions of the Apostles, written in about AD 300. So by looking at those quotes from early church history, we can see that actually the early church did observe Sabbath on the Saturday and observe the Lord's Day as well. 
And that's where the Celtic Christians took their kind of cue from, so from the Eastern Bloc of Christianity. And that's what spread through the British coast in the good old early days of Britain's history. All right? Now, not a lot of you probably knew that, but it's, uh, it's an interesting fact there anyway. Now, for anyone who's worried, I'm not going to try and bring you under bondage that you must observe the Sabbath, but I'm going to be teaching you about the principle of the Sabbath and the importance of it. So let me give you an example. I don't know if you know this, but there have been statistics done, and those people who are Sabbatarian in their beliefs live 11 years longer than those that don't. And if you add up those 11 years, that's a whole lifetime worth of keeping a day of rest for the Lord. 11 years. Okay, that's a fact. Also, companies, so in, in America you have Christian companies that uh, some of them will not open on a Sunday. They want to honour that day as a day of rest for the Lord. They tend to have better productivity and, better, and be better financially, more stronger than those companies that open 24-7. It's because... They're observing the principle of the Sabbath and therefore God blesses them in that. Now, some Puritans go, oh no, Sabbath must only be on the Friday to the Saturday. But the, but the fact is clear, the statistics show that those that operate in the principle of Sabbath get the blessing of Sabbath. It's a bit like tithing. You know, under the law, you were mandated to, to pay 23% ta uh, kind of tax, if you like, to God over three years. Now, in the New Testament, you're not mandated to pay your tithes, but if you operate in the principle of tithing, you get the financial blessing that comes with it. That's not a prosperity message. That's a fact. OK, I've tried it, tested it. I know thousands of other people have tried it, tested it, and it works. So if you want to operate in the blessing of something, because again, there's this, there's this other thing in the church today, and it's actually heresy. It comes from Marcionism. Now, Marcionism goes right back into the days of the early church. Now, a guy called Marcion, he didn't like the Old Testament very much. So what he did is he decided to cut out the bits he didn't like, and also in his New Testament, those bits he didn't like, because it had something to do with like Jewish God, and we don't like that. So he cut those bits out too. So he had his own Bible that basically, and Marcionism was a big thing in its day, which basically was a Bible that he felt comfortable with, which was really this nice, um, happy-go-lucky God who was never angry about anything, and never got upset about anything, just loved everybody, okay? That's exactly the same thing that we see in Christianity today. Oh, I'm not interested in that Old Testament rubbish. Not interested in that. I'm not interested in that Jewish stuff. That's all done away with. It's all finished. I don't read my Old Testament. Don't want to read my Old Testament because it's all old. It's outdated. It's all done away with. That's a form of Marcionism, which is a form of heresy. Okay. Now, as I said, prophetically, I believe that God wants to bring many of these ancient paths re-established and many of those ancient wells reopened and drank from. And that all sounds very super spiritual. But what I mean is, is going back and looking through the lens of history and theology and looking into the past of Britain and, say, and saying, God, what is it about Britain's past that you want to bring back to the church today, which the church no longer operates in and is no longer getting the blessing from these things? Like I said, if you... It, People that observe Sabbath most of their lives get the blessing of living longer. Now, some of you, that might be the worst thing to think of, but uh, <laughs> generally for most people, it might be a good thing. So what I'm going to be teaching of now is a thing called the rule. So the rule, so as you know, we're building a monastery and that monastery has to have a rule by which it's governed and by which it operates by, like any monastery. Now, in the days of the Celts, when they did monasteries, they generally made up their own rule for that community. So 
I'm going to share now some of this rule, and then over the next few weeks, part one of this rule is, is the joy of the Sabbath. And sort of, so for the next few weeks, I'm going to break down all the theology about the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to Sabbath, you know, with legalism and how about law and grace, and we'll go through all the theology. Um, but then the practical application of that, of how you can live it out in your own lives and stuff like that, so that you can enjoy the benefits of Sabbath. Um, because it's one of the things that we just, we just don't think is important. And this is what I think is a bit of a blind spot to us as Christians today. We think often things like, well, that's Old Testament, therefore it's irrelevant. Even things in the New Testament, well, you know, that was then, that's not now. Uh, and we miss out on something that is really intrinsically rich and beautiful. Yeah? So this, um, this rule has uh, 12 parts to it. So one is the practice of Sabbath. Two, honouring the Lord's Day. Good old-fashioned Christian stuff here. Three, life in community with family, the church and God. Fourth, the importance of Lectio Divina, which is biblical meditation. Five, living by the Ten Commandments and integrating that into communal life. Six, the importance of worship as a community. Seven, the importance of spiritual gifts as a community. Eight, the importance of prayer as a community. Nine, the importance of liturgy as a community, enabling the church to pray as one. 10, the study of sacred scripture and church history. Um, 11, the importance of humility. And 12, blending the church's liturgical calendar with the Jewish calendar. And by doing so, we harmonize both the good of the Gentile history of the church with our Jewish brothers and sisters. So that means, as we already do, we, we practice the three primary Jewish feasts of the year, like Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. But then as Gentiles, we all, because we are Gentiles and we produce Gentile fruits, you know, because we're wild olives and wild olives don't produce natural olive uh, fruit when they're attached to the natural tree. They produce wild olives. So it's important that we are faithful to our own identity as well as understanding that we're part of a Jewish tree as well. Okay. Um, right, so let's get to it then, shall we? So first thing about Sabbath is that it's universal. It's not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. Where's that in the Bible then? Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. This is a long, long, long time before there were any Jews that walked the earth. Okay? A long, long, long time. Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day. Do you know it's the only day of the week that's actually blessed by God in that way? You're all quiet today. You're right. Okay. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So something we need to be aware of here is that God blessed that seventh day. It's a day with a special blessing on it, etc. Now, this Sabbath was beginning, given at the beginning of creation. This is a long time before the law was given, okay? This is a long time before that. And so this, this Sabbath was not just for man, but it's for all of creation, for the plants, for the birds, for all creatures. You know, where's that in the Bible? Let's have a look then, shall we? Deuteronomy 5 Verses 12 to 14 gives us an indication of this. Be careful to observe the Sabbath day, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to work and do your tasks in six days. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On that day, you must not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male slave, your female slave, your ox, your donkey or any other animal. 
or the resident foreigner who lives with you so that your male and female slaves, just like yourselves, may have rest. So we can see that from that verse, even animals are supposed to observe the Sabbath. Okay? Now, this is complete opposite to how we live our lives now. Now, in 1969 in America, you could not do anything on a Sunday. You couldn't go to the shops, you couldn't go to the pub, you couldn't do anything. Most people went to church, even if they didn't believe in God, because there was nothing else to do. Okay? But then in 1969, the first 7-Eleven store came into existence, and then slowly but surely, that whole culture where we took a day of rest to honour the Lord was gradually eroded away. In this country as well, I remember when I was a kid, on Wednesdays, shops shut after 12 o'clock, and then on Sunday they were shut, and some shops shut, shut half day on Saturday as well. And so you kind of had this culture that forced a Sabbath rest on you, whether you wanted it or not, you're going to get it, all right? And then Tony Blair came along and he abolished the, uh, the Sunday trading laws over 25 years ago. And then now we live in this 24-7 culture, like McDonald's pretty much runs 24-7. I mean, who wants to go to McDonald's at three o'clock in the morning? Anyway, so um, you've got this whole 24-7 culture going on. You have these, um, this kind of zero uh, contract hours for people so they can make you work as much as you possibly can. But did you know that they did studies that people at work over 50 hours, the productivity just dropped straight off. They did other tests on people where they only made them work up to 30 hours a week and their productivity was way higher than those that worked for 50 hours a week. In other words, people work better from a place of rest than they do from work, 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 work. And this is the culture that we live in. Our culture is so anti-Christ. It's so anti-God in everything that we do. If God says, I deem it wise that man should work for six days and then have a break, but man's like, no, we will do it another way. Here's something that the Russians tried to do. They, I believe it's them. They tried to invent a 10-day week. Okay, make people work for 10 days, then you can have a day off, then another 10 days of work. People literally started dying. Okay, why is it that uh, anthropologists can't answer this question? Why is it that every single culture in all of planet Earth all have a seven-day week? It makes better sense mathematically to have a 10-day week. But every culture has a seven-day week because it's how God has designed it. It's how we have been made to operate. We are to work in this principle of sevens. You have, you know, it's, it's, I could go on and on about sevens, but I'll, I'll, I'll bore you. But nevertheless, man has been designed so that he can get six days of good productivity and he shall rest for one of those days. Now, also, even the land itself is to have a Sabbath rest. In Leviticus 25, 2 to 3, it says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. So even the land itself is supposed to have a Sabbath. The fields that we have got on the South Downs, which is our farming fields, they reckon there's 60 years left in them of productivity before they are useless because we work that soil to the bone and we don't allow it to rest and we don't give it that opportunity to reinvigorate itself. You see, even creation needs a time to rest and to reinvigorate itself. Another couple of interesting scriptures about the Sabbath and this comes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 56 verses one to two. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation, and in the Hebrew that's Yeshua, which is Jesus, will come and my righteousness be revealed. 
Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast and keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing evil. Isaiah 56, 6 to 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, that's us, we're Gentiles, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the Gentiles. Okay, any Gentiles here today? Yeah. Okay. Now, now, this is the scripture that really cooks your noodle, okay? Right, so even if you're like, oh, I'm a New Testament Christian, we don't have to observe any of that anymore. Well, look at this. You know there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth made, right? Okay, once this earth is finished, we get a new heaven and a new earth, and the new Jerusalem lands on the new earth, okay? Listen to this. This is from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 22 to 23. For as the new heavens... And the new earth that I shall make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So if you're not into Sabbath now, well, guess what? You're going to be doing it one way or another, whether you like it or not. And you're going to be doing it for eternity in the new heaven and in the new earth. It's still important to God. Therefore, it should be important to us. Bear in mind that we're living in a culture now that just completely has no regard for this stuff. Not because we don't think it's, it means anything, but because we've lost something and we've lost the value of it. And because our worldly culture has done away with it, therefore we no longer see it as being important or relevant. But that does not change the fact that God is immutable, he's unchanging, and his word is unchanging. And what God gives for mankind as a created principle for all living things remains true for the end of all time. You are a creature that's designed to live in cycles of seven days and of which at least one of those days must be a day of rest to the Lord. Do I get an amen? Amen. amen. I'm trying to encourage you to have a day off here. I mean, you know, what's so bad? Right, so... This scripture in Isaiah 6, 6 regarding the Sabbath and new, should, uh, that new earth and that new heaven should be a real deal breaker for us on this matter if you've got any issues regarding Sabbath. Mark 2 verses 20, verse 27 says, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now, this is it's really interesting about this particular verse because obviously Jesus is trying to deal with the uh, legalism that came about through Sabbath observance. But you see... That was in a culture where Sabbath was mandatory over everything. You and I don't even live even remotely in a culture that even in any shape or form reflects that. And you get Christians going, I don't want to observe Sabbath because it might be legalism. Right, let me say something. There's legalism. This is you, all right? You're so far away from legalism, which Jesus had to put up with in his day, all right, that it's not really something you have to worry about, all right? We're right over here, right? We're so liberal. We have nothing to do with that. We don't live in a culture where, according to the early pharisaical thinking, that even if you prayed on the Sabbath, you'd broken the Sabbath, okay? You and I, we, I hope you get the point. We are so far away from that, all right? We are not going to fall into legalism, at least not for a while anyway. So Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now, this is Jesus speaking this. Now, who is Jesus? God, right? Smart crowd, right? Okay, Jesus is God. So Jesus is clearly saying, Sabbath was made for you. All right, it's a gift to mankind. 
And this is how mankind has deemed it. Now, if God rested on the seventh day, okay, and it's good enough for God, what do you think you and I should be doing? Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. And if it's good enough for my father to take a day off, then it's sure is good enough for me to take a day off. Okay, scripture encourages us, encourages us to imitate the living God. Now, another scripture from Isaiah regarding the, uh, the beauty of Sabbath, Isaiah 58, verses 13 to 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honourable. If you honour it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, <laughs> didn't see that, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isn't that good stuff? You're all very quiet today. Um, I'm just going to go on a little bit further here. This is talking about the, because one of the things that Christians don't understand, I find today, is this whole thing about law and grace. Where does it become an issue of law and where does it become an issue of grace? So I'm going to talk to you now a little bit. So I hope you've got your brains in gear because we need to get a little bit technical for a little bit. Okay, there is a difference between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to the Sabbath, a big difference. Okay. Um, and I'm going to break this down now because uh, this, of, this, of all things, this is the one thing that we really need to get this because this stops a lot of nonsense teaching that's going on out there at the moment where Christians must observe the Torah. You are free to observe things within Torah, but it's not obligatory to us like it is to the Jewish people. And I'm going to look at this. So one of the, the answers to this is found in Exodus 31 verse 12. And it says, Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, okay, not the Gentiles, let's tell the people of Israel, you are to observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign. Now I want you to, in your mind's eye, underline the word sign, okay, between me and you through all your generations so that you will know that I am Adonai who sets you apart for me. Therefore you are to keep my Sabbath because it is set apart for you. Everyone who treats it ordinary must be put to death, for whoever does any work on it is to be cut off from his people. And in verses 16 and 17, the people of Israel are to keep the Sabbath, to observe Sabbath through all their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign, underline that word, between me and the people of Israel forever. The difference between you and me from that scripture there is that part of Israel's covenant under the Mosaic law was that they had to do two things, get circumcised and do Sabbath. If you broke circumcision or you broke Sabbath, you'd broken covenant with God. Okay, that's what it's saying here. You're an infidel if you broke Sabbath. There's nothing on that on us in, in New Testament Christianity. Okay, so let's carry on going forward. Uh, Genesis 17, 11, it says, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So, so Sabbath for the Jewish people was an obligatory covenantal seal and sign like circumcision was, okay? That if you didn't observe it, you were, you were out and you were apostate, okay? That's what's different between them and us. All right, so what about the Gentiles then? Well, that gets a little bit more tricky and fiddly, but we'll just go through the scriptures and we'll look at that now. Um, so as I've already mentioned, 
uh, when foreigners dwelt amongst the people of Israel, that they were too to observe the Sabbath, okay? But that's a different thing because you're living amongst the Jewish people and therefore you're coming under their theocracy and therefore you have to abide by their rules and their laws. Fair enough, right? Okay, all with me so far. But that's, that's Sabbath observance in the context of the Mosaic covenant. Now we are under the Abrahamic covenant, which is different. So the chapter of the Bible that deals with all of this, and I, I really wish people would read this and understand it. I, I even say this to certain people, and it's like it goes in one ear and out the other. It just bemuses me. But anyway, in Acts chapter 15, there was a big council. In the book of Acts chapter 15, there was a big council. And the council was Gentiles should get circumcised and they must come and observe the Torah. That's really what this, this church council was about. Let's read it. So from verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then this is key, verse five. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Okay, that's what, it, that's, what they, that's what this council's about. It's not about anything else. It's about this one question, or these two questions. Should they get circumcised and must Gentiles observe the Torah? The answer at the end of that conference is found in uh, Acts 28. And it starts with this. It seems good to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Who? Now, it's the Holy Spirit. I mean, who is the Holy Spirit? He is God, right? But it amazes me that people see this and yet ignore this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Okay? Do you need to get circumcised? Do you need to observe all the law of Moses? Verse 29 says this. Remember, this is good to the Holy Spirit. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, is there anything in there about what you can and cannot eat, except for a few little dietary requirements there? There is dietary requirements on Gentiles. So if you like black pudding, I'm afraid you're going to have to put that into the uh, uh, zone because that's got blood in it. You're not allowed to eat it, all right? You shouldn't really have meat, uh, eat meat with blood oozing out of it. You're not allowed to eat that kind of stuff. And there's a whole other, loads of theology I could go into there, but I'm not going to get into that. There was nothing in there about men getting circumcised and there was much cheering amongst the Gentiles. Yay for the men, okay? And, and there's nothing in there about observing all the law of, or, or, or the dietary laws or anything else. If anything, it, it, it's, uh, it talks about what, what they were aware of at that time, which you and I are not aware of, is a thing called the law of the Gentiles. Now we know about this from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The law of the Gentiles is what we now know is, is modern day called the Noahide laws, which comes from Genesis 9. And in this, God said to, God said to him uh, in verse 4 of Genesis 9, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. Uh, and a few other things. Uh, and then it also says, you may eat of any animal on the earth. Any animal. So Noah could eat anything he liked. Okay, back in those days. And so this is known as the Noahide laws. Um, 
but I don't want to go off on that right now. We could do, but it'd be fun, but we're not going to. Okay, so Gentiles have come under the uh, administration, not of the Mosaic covenant, but under the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant by faith in Christ. Galatians 3 verse 7 says, Understand then that those who have faith are the children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations, Gentiles, will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All right. So are you with me so far? So the thing I love about Abraham is Paul makes this clear in Romans 4. It's like Abraham came to faith before he was circumcised. Okay, so he is the father of the Gentiles because Abraham was himself a Gentile, but he's also through circumcision, the father of the Jews. And through that progeny came the Jewish nation of which there were certain stipulations to them, i.e. the land of Israel would be perpetually would be theirs. Okay, that's what it says. So it's all there in Genesis. Okay, but the land isn't for you and for me because we're Gentiles, but it is, does belong to the Jews. And therefore, there are certain requirements and obligations to the Jewish people that are not obligatory to the Gentiles. Acts 15 makes that clear. But having said all that, just to add one extra thing, because this is another thing that people would throw out there. Aha, Chris, but Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says this, Now this puts a, puts a spanner in the works. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Oh, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, we think to fulfill them means to abolish them. No, he didn't say that. He said, I'm not abolished them. I'm just going to fulfill them. Yeah, but then you've, you've abolished them by fulfilling them. No, I didn't say that. I said, I haven't come to do away with them. Okay, so not one jot or tittle, but by any means disappear from the law until everything is complete. In other words, until the end of the age, then the law stands 100% valid and in operation right now. Okay. However, there's a get out clause and it's found in Romans 6 and Romans 7. You see, you and I, anyone here been baptised? Okay, this is why it's baptism is important. If you've not been baptised, this is an issue, okay? You see, baptism is not just a symbol, it's not just something, it's not an optional extra, it's really important. That when you go down into the waters, you are dying with Christ. So that when you come out of the waters, you are a new creation. Why is this important? Romans 7, verses 1 to 6. And I've got a lot of scriptures here today, but please bear with me. I Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the Torah, the Mosaic law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person's alive? All right, okay, yeah, get that. For example, and he gives an example here. By, by the Torah, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the Torah that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, oh, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the Torah and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Okay, Paul's using this as an illustration to get to the point. What's the point? Verse four. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the Torah through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, another covenant, and to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. 
So because we've been baptised and through Christ, even though the Torah is still operating, we now die through baptism. Therefore, the Torah no longer has authority over us because we're dead. And now we are alive and a new creation. And now we can come into a new covenant. Whereas if you were still under the old covenant, you couldn't just jump into the new covenant because you'd been adulterer. So you must first die. And through death, you can come up into a place of resurrection life. So you're free to marry again. Do you all get that? That's how you can have the Torah operating at the same time whilst we are New Testament, New Covenant believers. Okay, a lot of Christians don't understand that. And that's where people get themselves into all kinds of knots. And that's where you get things like certain movements that say, no, all Gentile Christians, and I see this, you won't believe this, but you get a lot of Christians, and there are Gentiles that mostly say this, that Gentile Christians must get circumcised and must observe the Torah. But that's not true. But anyway, I could go on and on. I'm not going to go on and on about that. So I'm going to finish it there, actually. I've said enough. The next, next time I talk about it, I'll start talking about the principle of Sabbath. So hopefully from what I've just said today, I want you to know that Sabbath is a gift to mankind. It's for all mankind. It's not just for the Jew. The difference for the Jew is that it's a covenantal, mandatory, observable feast for them. Because if they don't, it's like going, it's breaking their own covenant with God. But for us as Gentile Christians, it's an invitation from God to say, look, this is how I've deemed creation. This is how you were created. This is how I am. And I want you to enter into the joy of that rest. And when you celebrate that Sabbath, understand what it is. Because it says uh, in the New Testament that says that, that do not let anyone judge you in respect to new moons and Sabbaths, for these are a shadow of the things yet to come. Okay, so which is found in Christ. So whenever we celebrate uh, Sabbath, we are entering into that rest that he's given to us and knowing that Jesus is our rest. You see, the trouble is that Christians allegorize this and spiritualize this, saying, no, Jesus is your Sabbath rest. Therefore, you never need to take a rest ever again as long as, you're alive, as, long as you walk this earth because, hey, Jesus has done it all for you and he rested for you. You don't need to rest anymore. All right. That's the nonsense that I hear uh, in churches these days. That's not true. But it's a principle. And if we operate in that principle of Sabbath by taking one day a week, it doesn't matter if you want to do a Friday. It doesn't matter if you want to do it on a Saturday. It doesn't matter if you want to do it on a Sunday. But choose a day that you can give to God and say, this is a day where I choose to honour you, God. I give you one seventh of my week. Well, I give it to you and you do. And, and, and it will be between me and you and the family and the, brother, and the brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. And also know that you are free to do this, but you're not obligated to do this either, as some may say that you are. And so enjoying yourself to that joy and to that privilege and that freedom and that newness of life and refreshment that you can get when you start observing the Sabbath. God bless you. Amen. Amen.